Hello and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to introduce to you now. Andrew Oswari, MD, is a board-certified physician with over 20 years of experience practicing medicine. In 2004, he transitioned to integrative medicine at the Chung Institute. Although he was living what he thought to be a healthy diet and lifestyle, Dr. Oswari was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes in January of 2019. Dr. Oswari found a therapeutic carbohydrate restriction program and has reversed his diagnosis. He has also eliminated his daily headaches, reflux, irritable bowel syndrome, hypertension, knee pain, brain fog, and has lost 70 pounds, keeping it off for two years now. He is passionate about sharing his message of healing. You can find him at the Chung Institute Center for Metabolic Healing, and he is active on Twitter at A. Oswari. Dr. Oswari. Welcome to the show, Boundless Body Radio. We're so happy to have you. Oh, thank you, Casey. It's an honor and a privilege. Think about all those things I just said. You were dealing with all of that every single day. Headaches, reflux, irritable bowel syndrome, hypertension. Like, holy smokes. <laughs> that sounds like a pretty miserable life, man. <laughs> it was, and I, I didn't even know I was just metabolically sick. I just thought I was stressed out at work. I was burnt out in medicine. Um, uh I didn't know what was going on. I just thought, you know, this is my life and and this is what's happening to me. Wow. That's so crazy. We talk a lot about, um, you know, the difference between normal and average on this show. And so many people are walking around with some of these conditions and they just, they consider it normal because so many other people are experiencing that, but they don't realize because it's so prevalent, it's average, but it's not normal. We're not meant to to live with all those conditions. So crazy. (laughs) Um, Absolutely. I totally believe that. Like it's, it's, it's an age thing probably. Yeah. Right. It's just part of getting older, dad bod, whatever. Yeah. Well, I want to hear your story and I want to hear your story through your Twitter account (laughs) of all things. You have a Twitter account that has like 2,300, uh, tweets, like tons of different tweets. And you've been on Twitter since 2011, but it's really interesting when I kind of started scrolling through and seeing those tweets are not evenly spaced out. When I go back to some of the tweets in 2011, 2012, you were tweeting about things like baseball. You were tweeting about maybe your family. There really wasn't anything in medicine that I ever saw. And then the, the account wasn't really used until 2019, which we can jump to later. But I just want to hear, like, what was it like, you know, 10 years ago, you didn't seem like you were very excited about medicine. So I, I'll tell you, my Twitter account, I don't even know why I started it, because I didn't even know how to use it. So uh, <laughs> I, I never really touched it. I mean, I would just throw something out there, which was like completely random. And then um, I didn't really forget. I didn't really, I don't know, think about it until 2019 after my probably after my brain fog lifted and uh, I started following different people uh, because I, I went into the low carb space and learned about all these docs. So started following some people and then I just started to figure out how to use it. And that's where my Twitter, I, I started using Twitter and it, my um, I'm not a good speaker. So those short little sentences are like perfect for me. <laughs> that's great. So let's go back um, again when you weren't, you know, tweeting about health and fitness didn't really seem like that was a passion of yours. What was it, what was it like practicing medicine, you know, a decade ago? Well, I gotta, you know, my, my story is like, I grew up fat. I, I grew up fat. I have a picture of me in 1976, which actually I was not uh, overweight at all. And then the next picture I see in my old album is in 1982 and, and, and I'm already obese there. And so I grew up overweight, obese, uh, 
and I was very active as high school. I was a swimmer, tennis. I played tennis, played soccer, and uh, I, I struggled with my weight my entire life. In medicine, I was teaching what I thought was right: uh, exercise, uh, vegetarian diet, less protein, um, doing all those things. And then when I looked at my life, I was like, I'm not getting any thinner. I, I'm not changing my life. And if it's not working for me, then how can I keep telling people the same thing if it's not working? So I just kind of stopped. Mm, interesting. So when did you start to learn about a different way? When I found out I had diabetes. I did my blood, my blood work and hemoglobin A1C was 7.4. And I was like, what in the world is happening to me? Um, a patient directed me to the ketogenic uh, diet when I, when I saw she was getting healthier herself. And that's when I went to Facebook and figured out my macros. And two weeks, all those things you listed in two weeks were gone. Wow. Wow. That's so interesting. I really want to take a deep dive with you on diabetes. It's something we end up talking a lot about on the show, but I don't think we've really explored what it is. I'm always surprised that people have so many questions about it. So can you tell us a little bit about what the disease is like, um, the difference maybe between like type one, type two, and how long it takes to develop and what things cause it? So type one is typically in the younger folks and they present with the usual symptoms that we're taught with diabetes. They're thin, they're thirsty, they go to the bathroom all the time. And it's theorized that it's an autoimmune condition where their body attacks the beta cells in the pancreas and they can't make the insulin. So their treatment is to literally take insulin, whether it's through injections or a pump, or, um, but it is, they do require insulin. Type two diabetes is when the person can still make insulin, but the traditional thought is that there isn't enough insulin or the receptors that are in the body do not react to the insulin available. And so it's hard for the body to take the glucose out of the bloodstream. Now, I learned a lot more on type 2 diabetes after I went into the low-carb space. There, there's Dr. Jason Fung, Joseph Kraft, Robert Unger, and it's changed the way I see diabetes. So... Just for an example, our bloodstream can hold about five grams of glucose. That's about a teaspoon and a quarter of glucose. And it's a very fine line. Tiny amount. Yep. Our liver is the first storage closet. I'm going to call it a storage closet that gets filled. So when the body has glucose in the bloodstream and it's getting to the point where it's too much, the body will stimulate insulin. And insulin takes that glucose, puts it in the first storage closet, which is typically the liver. And the liver can hold roughly about 70 to 100 grams of glucose. Our muscles are also storage closets for, for glucose, but we do have to empty them. And uh, it can be emptied with weight training and HIIT training. Um, and if those are full, there's still glucose available. The body needs to figure out what to do with it. And then insulin starts to turn the glucose into triglycerides. And that gets deposited in our bodies as fat. So when the liver is full, the muscles are full, the fat cells are full, that's when glucose starts to spill out into our blood, and that's when we get the diagnosis of diabetes, type 2 diabetes. Mm, interesting. So type 1, there's, there's no 
counter kind of hormone to the glucagon. And so glucagon is running amok. It's, you know, using way too much energy and people are, are going thin. And so if they don't have insulin, they will die. And so inventing insulin was super important. But what you're describing on type two is it's, it's like, there's no more storage space and there's more things to store. Is that a, an interesting way to look at it? Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah, it's, it's an easier way to, to think about it. And, 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 uh, as Dr. Fung his his book diabetes code says like like your your body is full is like a suitcase and it's full of clothes and and when you're trying to stuff more glucose in there you have to get more insulin to to do it so you need your 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 wife to to hold down the suitcase while you're shoving something inside and and you just need more people to do that well it's the same with the body when your storage places are full you need more insulin and so not only do you have hyperglycemia, which is high glucose, you also have hyperinsulinemia, which is also a driver of disease. Mm. I'm glad you brought that up. I was just going to ask you, what are some other things that associate with type 2 diabetes? Like when, when that is starting to come about, what other things do you typically see? Cardiovascular is probably one of the, if not the highest. Um, so we're talking about things like stroke and, and heart disease and, and, uh, heart attacks. We're talking about end organ damage, like the kidney, kidney failure, um, the eyes with, 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 um, retinopathy and blindness, hypertension. Um, those are some of the drivers. And, and now even more, more recently, obviously is the, the COVID-19 where, where, um, those that are obese and diabetic with hypertension, cardiovascular disease, they have much, much, much worse outcomes. Mm. Interesting. I'm glad you brought that up. I'm glad you brought up the suitcase um, analogy. I think that's a really good one. And I would think like, okay, well, if I've got the suitcase that's getting full, maybe I should stop putting clothes in, <laughs> like take a shorter yeah. trip, like don't need as many clothes, don't put as many clothes in the suitcase. So why don't, why don't we take that same approach in medicine typically? Right. Um, you know, I want to, I'm going to plug Dr. David Unwin. He's from the UK and he's doing just amazing work as far as writing up papers and explaining things. He has a great, um, if you've ever looked at infographics, just, just Google Dr. Unwin infographics. And it'll come up with these great graphs and how many teaspoons of sugar on each thing. And so I'm just going to do an example of a breakfast. Like, let's say a third cup of cornflakes has about 8.4 teaspoons of sugar, which is 33.6 grams. Then you have a banana which is 24 grams. Apple juice was 36 grams. A slice of toast was 22 and a half grams. So now right there, just for that breakfast, we're talking about 116 grams of sugar. Or if you divide that by four, it's about 29 teaspoons of sugar. Wow. Now you have to find a place for that in your body just from breakfast alone. And of course, two hours later, we're going to be hungry. So we we either have our crackers, fruits, nuts, or a granola bar or a protein bar. And then, you know, our liver and, and body just fills up with sugar very quickly. Wow. What, what you just described wasn't even like a piece of cake and a soda. That was a 1990s part of this complete breakfast. Like that's, that was considered healthy food 20, 30 years ago. Exactly. <laughs> Still is too. I mean, bowl of oatmeal with, a, with, with blueberries and bananas and, you know, maple syrup, it's still, 
still quite quite common. That's crazy. That's so crazy. So you described the person getting hungry again and needing a snack. So tell us tell us how that relates to insulin and what that's all about as well, because I think that's super important. Yeah. So our insulin, our bodies take about four hours after a meal for our insulin to go back down to, I'm not going to say zero, but but to a normal level. And so when we continue to feed the body every couple hours, um, there was one book that said uh, there were some people who were eating 10 times a day. Our insulin level never shuts off. And so when insulin is available, it is building. It's called anabolic because it builds things. It, it builds muscle. It builds fat. Uh, and so insulin does take the sugar out of the blood cell, but it also blocks your body from burning its own fat. And so we're, we're stuck in this conundrum that you're just continuing to build with, with no relaxation to break down and, and burn off the fat. So is that what causes people to be overweight and hungry at the same time, which is like the weirdest kind of problem to have if you really think about it, but it makes so much sense in that model. Is that kind of what you see? Yeah. Um, carbohydrates in general get, uh, tends to promote, uh, hyperphagia or eating more. Um, and you know, I've, I've, I've found that in myself, you know, if I have, chips or a cracker, I'm going to need something in a few hours. If I have a piece of cake, I'm going to be hungry much sooner. And that's probably one of the biggest side effects of being low carb for me is that I don't think about food like I used to. And I remember going to a um, anywhere and just thinking, what am I going to have for lunch? What am I going to have for dinner? And now I don't even think about it. Mm, I love that. That's one of my favorite parts about eating this way as well is just not it's not that you can't, it's just, you don't, you don't really care. It's not on your mind. Describe, you mentioned being hungry and I, I think that's really important. And I also think there's a very big difference between the type of hunger you feel. So eat the chips and you get hungry two hours later. What does that hunger feel like? Ah, oh, that's a good question. I had to learn that myself and I still have to, I still battle that, uh, having an overweight background, uh, hunger, what does hunger feel for me? I guess I'll feel it in my stomach. I'll feel more gurgling. I'll feel there's this emptiness taste in my mouth. It's not even the taste. It's just like feeling that uh, I need something. Whereas my other hunger was more like, hmm, am I bored? Do I need something? I, I really need something to satisfy something. And I don't even know what it is, but it could be salt. It could be water, but I just think thought of it as food. I needed food. Mm. Yeah. I just, when I get hungry now, like I'll feel the the empty stomach and I can definitely feel it in my mouth, but it's, it's not, it, it's not like wrecking my life. It's like feeling cold. You're just cold. It's, it's just hungry. Yeah. The, the brain fog, the, the like starving, starving feeling. Yeah. Like I hardly ever get that anymore. It's so nice. Um, yes. so crazy. So, okay. So Insulin is putting energy into cells, trapping the cells so that they can't release what they need. So how, how do we handle that in the standard medical system? Like what things do we do to help treat that? Well, so let's just take diabetes. Let's go back to diabetes. The, the treatment is the treatment goal is to get sugar out of the system, glucose out of the system. So the most common one now, probably first line is metformin. And metformin works by making the the, org the end 
cells like the liver and the muscles more um, sensitive to the insulin that's around. It'll use the insulin more efficiently and be able to take the sugar out. It also blocks glucagon or gluconeogenesis. So that the liver will not continue to make, make fuel uh, in, with glucose. So that's metformin. And then there's the other ones, like there's the um, GLP-1 inhibitors, there's the DPP-4, there's the SGLT-2. All those are to decrease glucose in the body. Mm. Whereas what we're trying to do is let's not put the glucose in the body. Let's let the body do what it's supposed to do. Yeah. I mean, going back again to the suitcase analogy, if you have a problem of too many shirts in the suitcase, then put less shirts in the suitcase, right? Yes. Yes. Yet, yet what we end up doing also for a lot of people in, again, like standard care is giving them more insulin. Is that correct? Right. That's, or, or stimulate the insulin to provide or, or do something. So yeah, I remember in the hospital and, and, you know, it took me, I mean, obviously it took me 18 years to, to figure this out because I'm kind of slow, but I remember in the hospital when I was in residency where you would, you would say, okay, if you're going to have this much glucose, you're going to have to take, or I mean, if you're going to have this many carbs, let's take this much insulin. So we put them on an insulin sliding scale. And, and now I'm looking back and I'm like, why did we even give them the carbohydrates in the first place? We should have just not lived with insulin, let the body take care of itself. Wow. Now we're talking a lot about carbohydrates and insulin. What about some of the other macronutrients? Do they have the same effect on insulin, the insulin that we have in our body, if we, you know, fat or protein? So I'm going to, again, this is just going to be a very general, very basic. Let's, it, let's, let's just say carbohydrates um, turn, spike your glucose and insulin. And we'll just, again, just to be on the easy side, we'll make it a 10. Protein may stimulate it to a level of five and fats may stimulate it to a level of zero to one. So again, that's very general terms, um, but certainly protein and fats will not stimulate glucose uh, and, and insulin release as much as carbohydrates will. Gotcha. Now you mentioned a blood marker A1C. Can you explain what that is and why that's important for um, understanding you know, blood sugar, uh, insulin, and type 2 diabetes? Sure. Hemoglobin A1C is actually an estimated average of your sugar level for the last three months. Uh, it's actually measuring what they call glycated red blood cells or the percentage of red blood cells that have sugar-coated hemoglobin. So it's not, it's not actually testing how much glucose is in the system. It's just an uh, estimated average of the sugar for the last three months. But that's important to know as well. Um, yeah, interesting. And a, one, a number over six and a half in most places is, is considered diabetic. Mm. Are there other ways, I mean, I know people stick their finger. Are there other ways you like people to measure blood sugar or is that your favorite marker to look at? It's definitely not my favorite measure because I've seen folks with low carb um, carnivore with higher a A1Cs more than you would expect. And again, it's, it's because we're measuring the glycated red blood cells instead of the actual sugar. Uh, I love using the continuous glucose monitor. Uh, I think it's something, I'm going to call it a biohack. Uh, not all places uh, 
we'll cover it as far as insurance is. But if if you can get it for twenty or forty dollars, I think it's worth. It's called the Freestyle Libre. Is the one I prescribe, and it can, you you leave it on your arm for two weeks, and you take your phone or your reader, and you scan it after whatever you eat. And it's it's interesting to see the patterns of glucose. Does it spike up? Does it come right back down? Does it go up gradually? Does it stay up longer? Or and does then comes down? It also tells you like what foods make it go up. So I've seen a few times where for my patients have eaten oatmeal with some fruit and it, it goes really high. For me, it's rice. Rice really makes it go up. And so it's important for me and my patients to see it right off right there to see which foods do what to your body, because we're all different too. So you're able to see that in real time as it's happening. Yes. And it, re- it records it as a graph as well, which you will lose on finger sticks. So the finger sticks are good too, because if that's all you can do, then that's great too. Um, you would check your sugar before you eat and then about 60 minutes after you eat. Roughly, that's where the spike occurs. But I do remember like for myself, I remember when I was first doing this and I had movie popcorn, which is horrible, right? It has, it's not even real butter. It's a trans fat butter. And I, I like it flavored. So I, I, I had this popcorn and I'm scanning my sugar and 30 minutes, 60 minutes, 90 minutes. I was like, hey, this is great because my sugar is fine on this popcorn. Um, hour and 20 minutes. Then I start seeing it start to rise. And I peaked at about three hours. And if wow. I would have used I would have lost it. I would never have seen that. I would have never guessed that. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. I've used this analogy on the show before. My, I, I, I got a new car a few months ago. My old car wouldn't tell me what my fuel economy was. And so when I went to the pump to fuel up, I would just kind of reverse engineer it and say, okay, I put in 12 gallons. I went this many miles. This was my average fuel economy. But that doesn't change my behaviors real time. My new fancy car it shows me real time what my fuel economy is. And I find myself very easily like self-correcting things, easing off the gas a little bit to see if I can get that number to go higher. And it's so, so helpful to see it real time because I've learned like what behaviors I'm doing as I'm driving is actually truly changing the fuel economy as it's going. And I'll use that example to kind of explain to people what a CGM is and how useful it can be to see that data. Because oftentimes, do you, do you notice that people are, are correcting on their own? Absolutely. Oh, I love that analogy. That's great. Yeah. I, I, my, my patients, you know, the, the CGMs get their, their data gets sent to me. And um, if I see something, they're usually going to actually text me first before I text them, like before I say, hey, what happened? No, they'll text me and they'll say, oh man, that was a slice of pizza. I'm never doing that again. <laughs> I love it. That's great. Ah, so, so useful to have that information rather than, you know, checking your blood once and just having a, a quick snapshot yeah. but not telling you real time. Wow. Interesting. Okay. So let's go back to you. Let's go back to your life experience right before you get diagnosed with type two diabetes. Tell me what is a typical day for you? Um, what was your practice like? How, what was work like? Um, your overall energy, what, what was a normal day for you back then? So I left traditional medicine in 2007, uh, to join Dr. Chung at his Institute because I, felt like all I was doing literally was maintaining disease 
by prescriptions. And so from 2007 on, I, I felt good because we were making changes. We were, were, we were making, I don't want to say making cures, but we were, folks were feeling better. Let's just say that. Uh, and we weren't using medications at all. It was just using acupuncture or prolotherapy or, or whatever thing that we were using. And um, so I wasn't, I didn't feel like I was burned out. Like I only, I did traditional medicine for five years and I was feeling burned out at the end. Five so years. I didn't feel that. Five years. Yeah. Five years. Exactly. Wow. I had to see, you had to see, you know, in order to make money in that, in that world, it's like the more people you see, the, the more money you're going to make. And, and not only that, the hospital systems wanted you to have a certain amount of people that you want to see every day too, or else you'll get docked. So, yeah. Uh, so it wasn't like I was very unhappy as a doctor, but the, probably from for the last three years before 2019, so since 2016, um, I was getting really burned out. I was irritated. I was aggravated. Uh, I remember times when I would walk into the office, look at my schedule and literally want to turn around and say, I'm done. Uh, I remember uh, staff would want to come up, would come up to me and they looked like deer. I'm sorry for that, that, but they, they looked like, Oh man, this patient is really sick. They want to come in. Can you see them? And I would be like, what am I supposed to do with this guy? Wow. That's what I was. That's what I was for the last two or three years before uh, again, changing my, my diet. And two weeks later, it was just like, it was so clear. Wow. So, okay. That was going to be my next question is if you look back honestly at your diet back then, were you following what you would have recommended to your patients or were you cheating here and there? Were you, you know, eating lots of cereal and toast kind of a thing? Like what, what did your diet look like up to that point? So I had already gone lower carb. It wasn't nearly as low carb as I am now, but I was lower carb. Um, my drinks were water. Literally, I didn't do juices. We didn't have soda in our house. Um, didn't really have a sweet tooth. I was more vegetarian. So, I mean, was I, I, I probably took the everything in moderation a little bit too far. I know, I'm pretty sure of that. But I would be, I would do well for a little while. I would lose 10, 20, 30 pounds and then gain it all back again very quickly. Um, and I was exercising. So I, I thought I was doing things right. Probably not to the strict that I would have had to do to, to believe in the, the calories in calories out model. It was hard for me. Mm. Yeah. I just wanted to ask that question to establish the fact that like you were, you were trying, this isn't like the line that wraps around the building at the local soda store down the street that's selling buckets of soda, you know, for $2. That wasn't you at any point. Is that fair to say? Right, right. And I was, and I'm Chinese and I gave up rice a long time ago. <laughs> a long time ago. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. So, okay. So 2019, you get the diagnosis. What were some of the first resources you remember coming across and what kind of dissonance were you experiencing learning about this low carb stuff? I thought it was, I thought it was, first of all, I thought it was hokey and gimmicky. That's what I thought. Mm. I, I went to Facebook. That's, that's where I got my information. I got to Facebook, went to my fitness pal. Uh, my fats were 75%. My protein was 20%. My carbs were 5%. And I just stuck to that. 
Wow. And and honestly, this two week mark is was is crazy. But that two week mark is what opened my eyes to everything. Wow. I started the podcasts. I I found Low Carb MD, which referred me to Nutrition Network. So I took their courses. And now we have the Society of Metabolic Health Practitioners, uh, which is a great resource. So these things just started falling into my lap, and I've never looked back. Wow. That transition, the two weeks, was that terribly difficult for you, or was it easier than you would have expected? You know, it, it's it's pretty motivating when you have a diagnosis that you would never have thought you would have got. I was going to ask that. Thank you yeah, for saying for that. Me, yeah, for me, it was diabetes, man, because I, I taught diabetes and, and you know, I knew about diabetes, number one risk, one, number one cause of blindness, number one cause of kidney failure, number one cause of amputation. So I was like, how is this happening to me? And that was really my motivation. Did I have, did I have um, cravings for uh, a bagel? Yeah, I did. Did I have cravings for, for, for a piece of bread or, or pasta or something? Yeah, I did. Um, but that's a great motivator in the short term. And then when I felt so much better, that was pretty easy after that. Mm. So what was a typical dinner before, you know, even when you weren't eating the rice, like before versus after what, what did your plate look like as far as the food itself goes? Mostly almost, almost all, um, vegetables. Uh, we would, we would have occasional chicken or beef, a smaller portion, probably less than four ounces, mostly vegetables at that time. And then afterwards, um, were you still eating the same amount and just adding more fat in? Afterwards, I was okay with meat. And, and I, so I started eating more meat, um, probably two servings worth of protein, which I'd say is probably about eight ounces. And then the rest of vegetables. And if I did feel hungry, then I would put, I would make sure to have more fat. Wow. So I, I did try to hit the 75% fat goal on my fitness pal with uh, coconut oil, butter, heavy cream and coffee. Um, those were probably my added, added fats. And gotcha. now we don't have to do that many fats. Yeah. Gotcha. Right. Interesting. So in the two week transition period, you switch over what at the end of the two weeks, were you pretty much out of the woods as far as the diabetes goes, or was that still kind of an ongoing thing that you had to deal with? You know, I don't know. I never checked my sugars. I, I, well, I did uh, my sugars. You know, I don't even remember, to be honest with you. Mm. I just remember at that two week spot, I was like, I, I read three books that week. I, I found three podcasts. I, I signed up for the nutrition network. I mean, I was just trying to get as much information as possible. And I didn't, I just forgot about my diabetes. Honestly, I, I forgot about it. I felt so good. Uh, and I checked it my A1C about three months later, and I believe it was 6.6. Wow. That's so cool. It's nice to just forget about something because you're feeling great and so ultra motivated. In the introduction we talked about, I'll read this again, headaches, reflux, irritable bowel syndrome, uh, hypertension, knee pain, brain fog, 70 pounds lost. Those were just like side effects of yeah. your change. How soon did you start noticing those things go away? And, and was that surprising to you? It literally was two weeks for me. I'm, I mean, I know I'm the lucky, I'm a lucky one for sure. Irritable bowel, man. I thought that was my life. I, I really thought I, I grew up with irritable bowel. I, I thought that was here to stay. And uh, when that was gone, that's when I really started figuring out like, 
hey, my headaches are gone. Hey, my I'm thinking clearly. Hey, I'm I'm not fatigued anymore. Hey, I'm not as irritable as I was before. I'm, um, yeah, I I always keep saying that two weeks because that's when it turned around for me. All of it. Yeah, it was crazy. <laughs> it was crazy. That's amazing. I remember walking downstairs. You know, when I wake up, I used to wake up. I would walk down the stairs, and if I ever had a really good day, which mean mean to me was like going down the stairs and my knees didn't. I didn't think about my knees. I was like, "Geez, this is a great day." Wow. And that way every day. <laughs> wow. All right, man, we're going back to your Twitter account. So I literally, you're, you, you, you start Twitter because <laughs> you don't know much about it or how to use it. I, I, again, I saw like a baseball post about the Yankees or something and like a few other little things here and there. It goes dark in 2015. There's really nothing between 2015 and 2019. And you had maybe, again, done like, I don't know, 50 to 100 tweets ever. And then all of a sudden, your Twitter account is blowing up. You are posting and posting and posting and posting, and it's all about your profession. And you can just tell you are lit up, so excited. Can you tell us why it was important for you to share your message? I think the majority of my my tweets now are because of patients that have, have changed their own life. Um, to me, there's nothing more encouraging than to hear these success stories of folks who've, who've done it. Uh, even like today that I had a guy, he came to me for, for foot pain three months ago. And I looked at him and I said, boy, I, you know, in my mind, there's a lot of visceral fat here. So we do a little quick, low LC, low carb, high fat, uh, discussion. Uh, I see him in follow up a couple of weeks later. I can tell his gut has already decreased. Uh, the the rotundness has already calmed down. And today, um, I had to stop his blood pressure medicine that he'd been on for the last five years. Now that jazzes me more than anything. Uh, I I remember just maintaining disease, and now things are actually turning around. Things that I never thought I could do, that could happen. Because I had seen people. People came to me for acupuncture and and. Uh, complementary alternative medicine, integrative medicine to help get them off their blood pressure medicines. But it wasn't happening. I tried and tried and I told them, I, my, I would say, you know, the blood pressure medicine is is safer than you not being on the blood pressure medicine at this time. But now I've had patients come off the blood pressure medicine and and it, it astounds me. Every time that happens, I'm, I'm just shocked. Wow. I'm overjoyed, but I'm shocked. Wow. And that was starting in 2019 after fixing yourself, you start fixing patients and it seems like more often than not, they are, they're not just like maintaining, they're getting better. They're restoring their health. They're reversing disease. Is that, that's what you've seen? Yeah. And I love it. I just, I mean, that's what gives me excitement anymore. That's, that's it right there. Just trying to heal as many people as we get in contact with. This is February 6th of 2021. Andrew Soari, MD, Twitter, um, tweet. For 49 years, I couldn't wait to retire. Then I found my passion. Now I can't wait to see the future. What's more amazing? My wife shares my passion, can't be more blessed. <laughs> wow. That's it. That's right. That's, uh, Jane, you know, Jane's my wife, and, and uh, I certainly, I don't know if I could have done this without her. Um, she's lost 40 on her own. She's gotten off her blood pressure medicine on her own. Uh, her, her blood pressure, 
shocked us one one time. It was 180 over 110. And wow. Yeah. Uh, she had lost, let's, I think she had lost about 20 pounds when we took the blood pressure again and it was, it was normal. Oh no, no, wait, it was 20 pounds, took the blood pressure. It was still high and she was still on medication. It was still high. About two weeks later, something just clicked in her body and the blood pressure was normal. So, you know, I always, we were, we're always taught that like blood pressure is, is a, a weight thing. You have to lose weight. Uh, but now when that happened to her, we knew there was something hormonal that was going on. And I believe it's more the the insulin stuff that's going on. Wow. Um, but yeah, my, my wife is uh, now she's just started her master's in nutrition and uh, functional medicine <clears throat> from the same group that I just listened to Tony Hampton. He's, he's doing that same thing. So I'm excited we we have the same language. We we share some patients, and and I'm just so proud of her. That's so cool. She's a help. Wow, I've been fortunate enough to be able to work with my wife. You know, in the gym when we were there, and then you know when the pandemic hit, we decided to start our own business. And it's it's just such it's so amazing to be able to work with a partner who's on board and both out. You know, feeling like we're living what our calling is, and we're trying to help people. What does it mean to you to be able to work with your wife and help people out? You know, when as we were getting healthier together, I don't think there's anything that actually got us closer to this, our journey now. Um, we, it's been healing not only for our physical lives, but our emotional, our spiritual, and our relationship lives. And I always wanted to work with her, but I'll, and I'll be honest, she was afraid to work with me. And, and now I see it because uh, I was so irritable back then. That, yeah, I probably couldn't work with myself either. And uh, now she reaches some of my patients better than I ever could. Like she'll, she'll dig in and find something that they can't, that I couldn't figure out. And I just love it. I just want these patients to get better no matter who does it and how it does, happens. So I just awesome. love it. That's great. What's a typical day like for you guys now? Um, you know, I, I also decided back then to, to start working later uh, so I could spend time with my wife in the morning. Um, so we get up, we, we talk, we just lay around and just talk really, <laughs> uh, which I think is healing for us. Uh, then we, she does her schoolwork, I go to work. And, and when we get back, we usually do dinner together. And I don't know, we, I don't know. It's just so much better. That's great. <laughs> That's great. Simple is better. And I think this last year has taught us all that we were probably really way over throttling our lives and to slow down and appreciate those simple things is just, yeah. it's, it's such a gift, such a gift. Yeah. I, yes. I really love people that are adept at using multiple tools and skills to be able to help people. And you've mentioned, um, acupuncture, ac uh, yeah, acupuncture. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I see you blending you know, the East and, and the West style of medicine and bringing acupuncture into what you do for people. Can you tell us how that started and, and what, what benefits you've seen from that? Sure. 2005, my brother asked me if I want to take an acupuncture course. So I said, yeah, cause I knew I wanted to do that. And then my mentor actually turns out to be my boss that hired me in 2000. And so just following him for a little while, I was seeing people getting better and, and, uh, I, I went that way. And now when I look back, it's, 
you know, integrative medicine, complementary alternative, functional medicine, chiropractic, naturopathic, you, you can just list all these different ones. We've, we step back from the reductionist view of medicine uh, when we treat disease. So let's take diabetes, for instance. You know, the reductionist view is to treat the glucose with medication and to fix whatever metabolic pathway is being affected. That's more of a reductionist view. And when you take an integrative approach or alternative approach or whatever you want to call it, you're stepping back. You're, you're looking to see what else the body is doing to, because we're really, when, when we're treating the glucose, we're actually treating what's already happened. We're, we're, we're treating the symptoms of the disease that's already happened. And, and what we need to do is look back and see what caused this to happen. Because the body is an amazing, is an amazing, amazing being. It, it, it can compensate so much that it can hide diabetes for 15, 20 years. Um, because our insulin levels and, and our body just knows how to do these things. So when you step back and you look at what really is the cause of the syndrome, you know, then you and you look at their their families and their relationships and their spiritual, emotional beings. And you know, I I listened to your podcast with with Mark uh, Cucciarella. Remember his foot his foot podcast. How how you can hurt your foot and then that can cause neck pain and headaches because of the anatomy chain. That's mm. it's the same thing. You know, our bodies we're not disconnected. We're all connected together, and we need to look at everything as a whole to bring healing from the real core, mm. not the symptom core. Mm. Yeah, I love that. I, so I've never had it done. So uh, this is an honest question. Like, what what does that practice look like? Like, if I were to come to see you and say, "Hey, I would like you to practice practice acupuncture on me," what what things are going through your mind as you're taking a look at me? Like, how do you know where to put the focus? So acupuncture, you could look at it as like a like a, a well, traditionally it's like moving chi or moving energy, but when I look at it in the in a Western view it's actually changing because they've done studies on this you're actually changing the parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system with certain points that i don't know how they figured out but it's definitely um, important point points so you can actually help the body relax you can give the energy body more energy and then there's also an anatomic part of acupuncture where if you find trigger points you can hit the trigger points and actually break them up so there's a lot of different different methods to this. Um, I don't really subscribe to the energy model uh, because I know that, you know, scientifically there there's uh, for sure these points make a difference in the body. Mm. That's so interesting. So tell us about your clinic. Um, you know, tell tell us how you kind of blend those things together for people. Hmm. I. Uh, we listen to the patients. We give them a little bit more time. Than interesting. Usual. That's an interesting uh, concept. Yeah. And now since 2019, I asked them about their diet uh, because nutrition is so huge. And now I've, I've known, I know that now. And so I, that's become more of my focus. I still do everything that I used to do, but, but now I have to teach them about the seed oils and your listeners, they have to listen to Tucker Goodrich and Kate Shanahan. Those are amazing podcasts. Uh, I think the seed oils are damaging. Chris Kenobi. Um, yeah, those are my, my main sheet is get rid of these seed oils and I give them a list, get rid of refined sugars and get rid, rid of refined grains. Mm. 
And then you're left with real foods, whole foods. Yeah. It's great. <laughs> it's great. Well, you, you were smart enough to kind of see what was going on and step out of the standard medical field, medical system. I, I want to ask, like, if you had a magic wand, you, you had whatever time or money or whatever, what, what would you say would be the biggest thing we could do to fix or, or improve, I guess, the medical system as it is right now? Well, first of all, thank you for giving me this question beforehand because <laughs> I really had to think about this one. It's a tough it's one. It's a question, you know? <laughs> yeah. But how about we get rewarded for real wellness? In, in other words, um, maybe it's give us a lump of us a lump sum of money to keep someone well. And instead of being paid for every time we see someone, we would be encouraged to actually get someone as well as possible. So they wouldn't have to come in and make doctor's visits so often. So instead of getting rewarded each time they come in, how about we get a set amount? And for example, let's just say $100 per patient. And we'll get the $100 if you see them zero times or five times. So obviously, I'd, like, I'd want to do everything I can to, to not have to see them. And if I do see them, it's going to be a social visit, not a, not a uh, which medicine do you need refills on this mm -hmm. time. That's yeah. Great. Well said. I think that's a great idea. I don't know. I think it would take a magic wand. I don't know where that money would yeah. come from, but yeah, I mean, if we, if we flip the script a little bit and, and we're rewarded for helping people improve and improve their health, I think that would, you know, vastly change the system. I think that's, that's just really well said. Well, it's been so fun to deep dive with you. What's something outside of medicine that you're excited about these days? You know, I just, listen to your podcast with Corey. And <laughs> I got to say, thank goodness for the COVID lockdown because I found a smoker and yes. I love smoking meat. <laughs> that's, my, that's my hobby. I don't think I even had a hobby before that. That's amazing. Dude, it's so fun. <laughs> I love smoking. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> what are some good things you made recently? Oh, I love brisket. I love brisket. Oh, I um, I did tweet about a heart I smoked. I don't know if you saw that one. But no, I didn't. Interesting. My heart is actually really good. Wow. <laughs> I'm going to have to try that. That sounds great. <laughs> yes, it is good. That's awesome. So we ask, we ask everybody uh, where they where they can find the best brisket. Um, Austin seems to be coming up a lot. But for you, I'm going to tweak the question, and I'm going to ask you how you prepare your brisket. Is there any tips or tricks, or are you going to keep that a secret from us? <laughs> No, there's no trip. I, I I learn everything from YouTube still. So <laughs> that's great. I, I listen to I listen to your podcast and try to figure out any any more trip tips I can find. So <laughs> that's I funny. do wrap mine. I do wrap mine though. I do wrap mine at the stall. So. Nice. Yep, that's what I do. Uh, Aaron Franklin of uh, Franklin's Barbecue in Austin, Texas. I yeah. use his videos to teach me how to do it. Very simple, yes. salt and pepper rub. And he he's yep. against he's against the wrapping. And I gotta say, I, I'm I'm a rapper. <laughs> <laughs> I also wrap it in a blanket and then put it in the cooler. Oh, nice. Yeah, I, I I wrap it in a blanket after it's done, and I put it in the cooler and let it rest for an hour. That's great. Oh. And then when I take it out, I take it out like a baby. Like, this is my baby. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> yes. Oh, well, now I'm hungry again. <laughs> uh, what do you see in your future as far as your clinic, your practice? Any, any changes or anything that is um, up and coming as far as that goes? Yeah, I, I, I want to I want to do something to help stop childhood obesity. Uh, it is something that I struggled with. It, it actually helped shape my 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 adulthood, not in a great way, because you know I, I have more feelings of embarrassment of 
I had poor self-esteem, thinking I'm not good enough. Uh, I, I don't want kids to grow up with that. I don't think they have to anymore. Knowing what we know, uh, I'd like to do something to try to stop that. That's cool. How how can we approach that? What do you think is, is the best way? Is it more like education? Is it you know the nutritional guidelines we just absolutely have to change? Or can we can we do something before that happens, if that ever happens? That's what I'm trying to figure out. I think we, we definitely have to get to the to parents. I mean, easier if 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 they're even in their pregnancy. There's there's some some talk and some some statistics that show uh, if if the if the mom is is eating uh, not a not a, not nutritionally dense uh, during their pregnancy, that the child has a, a greater propensity for for being overweight and obese as well. Um, so starting there. Um, we're going to have to work from the ground up. I mean, there's too much, you know, even formula formula has more, has as much fructose as a, a bottle of Coke. It's crazy. Um, and then you have, of course you have the, uh, the child, the foods, um, which I'm sure have a little bit of sugar too, because you know, it, it's more palatable. Mm, that's so crazy. Well, I, I think that's a wonderful crusade to have anything we can do to, to help that situation, um, I think would be so important because I, I, you know, you're right. I, I still remember growing up as kind of the chubby kid and I, those, those types of things, yeah. they can sometimes linger for people and cause emotional distress and trauma. And so I think that's a wonderful thing to be yeah. focused on. Now I realize I'm asking this question to one of the most humble people <laughs> I've ever learned from. And I just have to ask, what what do you see as the role of humility in your life and in your practice? Um, why why has that been important to you? Humility allows us to learn, and it allows us to have a discussion that's uncomfortable with people. Um, if I were to believe that I was right on everything, then you couldn't change my mind. Even if you were 100% right and I was 100% wrong. So, you know, when I first started this journey again, I found Dr. Tim Noakes, Prof Noakes. And I saw his, I, I listened to his interview. I saw him ripping out this book that he had written and become a bestseller, ripping out the pages that, and, and him apologizing that he had gotten it wrong. I mean, that changed my life just watching that too. So, I think we we have to have humility to want to learn and to learn from others. It's mm, a great answer. And you've certainly shown that in your career and we're really grateful for that. I do want to ask a little bit about your faith. I know that faith is a really important part of your life. Was it difficult for you as a Seventh-day Adventist? I, I believe you're still practicing, is that correct? Yep. Was it difficult for you to start to incorporate more, you know, animal foods in your diet when that's not necessarily something that's encouraged in the Seventh Day Adventist? Seven Day Adventist. So, uh, yeah, when I when I came across uh, Dr. Fecky and Belinda Fecky, I was embarrassed. I was ashamed um, for what they had done in Australia, and I did have to come to grips with that. That, and then looking back, like. Um, yeah, but but I also believe that you know man can uh, mess things up for no matter who you are, and um, I still believe in God. I still practice because I do believe the Bible. Um, yeah, I mean, hey, we're all human. We all mess up sometimes. Yeah, beautiful answer. I love that. 
Um, it's, it's great. <laughs> Very well said. What is one simple thing that you would want somebody to take away from this conversation and apply in their life? I think it's, it's take control of your life and your health. Uh, and then the, the second part of that is don't ever feel guilty about your own self-care. Mm. Wow, man, this has been such an amazing conversation. I've, I've learned a lot. It, I really appreciate you being honest and being vulnerable and helping us understand blood sugar, diabetes, all these things, and taking us on this journey with you. You are a beacon of light on Twitter. When I see your name pop up, I know it's always going to be something really uplifting and positive that's going to follow. Where would you like people to go to find you, connect with you, and, and find your work? Our website is Center for Metabolic center for metabolic healing.com um i am mostly active on twitter and one of these days we're going to start a youtube channel <laughs> this we have a name it's still it's center for metabolic healing i do have a few things out there but i just uh, again i think it comes with me I, I hate seeing myself on video i hate hearing myself on <laughs> Dude. But it's something we need to get going. <laughs> Social media, we talk about it all the time, is so frustrating. I hate, <laughs> hate hearing my voice played back again. But I always love the, the, the content from the guests. I will listen to this episode the morning it comes out, and I will learn something from you again that I will really appreciate. And that has really surprised me about podcasting. And I, I just, I so much appreciate you and your work and your journey and sharing it. And again, we'll go back to that tweet, February of 2021, 49 years. I couldn't wait to retire. Then I found my passion. Now I can't wait to see the future. What, what's yeah. more amazing. That's, 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 sums up your life. I love it. And we're just so grateful for you and for your work. Dr. Andrew Oswari, thank you so much for coming on to our show today. Oh, I appreciate you. And, and, and I just want to give you a plug too, because I have learned, you know, I, all these guests that you have, I've heard them before. I've heard them on so many different podcasts, but you are like a storyteller and you, you get them to tell stories that they haven't told before. And I love it. I just love it. Mm. So I thank you. Thank and, you very and much. The way you look at folks and, and the way you dig in and, and yeah, it's, you, you have a gift. So I am so <laughs> Well, thank you. That's very, very kind of you. We we're just, we're so lucky to have you and all of our other guests on and we're so grateful for you. So thank you very much for coming on. Thank you, Casey. And this has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio.